Well, Martin Luther has said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. This is a challenge to us, but it's also a reminder. Like oxygen, like food, like water, are essential and necessary for a healthy, vibrant life, so without prayer we will be spiritually lifeless. And we're, we're, we have the tendency to think about prayer as this serious and important duty. And it is that. But it's the kind of duty like breathing air. When you, when you hold your breath underwater, you're seeing how long you can hold it. When you come up for air, you don't view it as a duty to breathe. It's an enjoyable experience. You need it. It is, it is life to you. And in the same way, prayer is an important duty, but... When we recognize what it truly is, when we recognize our relationship with God the Father through the Son, we recognize it is life to be able to speak to the Father. Today we conclude our topical sermon series on prayer. So we've considered praying the Lord's Prayer, praying for others, and praying for our enemies. Today we'll consider uh, praying without ceasing from this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. 16 through 18. So turn there in your Bibles and follow along again as I read that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Father, won't you speak to us by your word? Won't you show us Christ and your glory? Won't you nourish us, convict us of sin and nourish us in faith, strengthen us in love and joy and in thanksgiving. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul wrote this letter to somewhat young and immature believers. I don't mean immature in a condescending sort of way. They were just young. So we know from Acts 17 that Paul had visited Thessalonica and had preached the gospel in the synagogue for three straight Sabbaths. As a result, some of them were persuaded. The scripture tells us a large number of Gentiles and women were saved, but the Jews became jealous and enraged. They, they formed an angry mob and set the city in an uproar. They grabbed Paul's host, who was named Jason, and some other believers... And they dragged them to the authorities saying that they were blaspheming Caesar by claiming there was another king named Jesus. And that is exactly what they were claiming, right? But as a result, Paul didn't get to stay with these new Christians to continue discipling them week after week in the scriptures. So some months later, Paul sends Timothy to check in on the Thessalonian church to see how things are going. He finds that things are going generally well and yet there's some confusion about some different issues. There's confusion about the end times and the coming of Jesus. What happens to those who have died when Jesus comes back? They're also confused about the continuing persecution that they are facing. They thought perhaps maybe it should have ceased by now. It should have stopped by now. But the good news, even with these matters of theological confusion, 
the believers are standing firm in the faith. So Paul gives voice to that and gives thanks for that. Paul writes to encourage these believers to keep on standing firm. He comforts them by telling them that they are constantly in his prayers. And he clears up the confusion about the return of the Lord. You know that wonderful passage at at the end of 1 Thessalonians about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and how he comforts them with these words that the dead in Christ will be raised first and then we too who are who are in Christ we will be changed in a moment to meet the Lord Jesus in the air so he he writes them to comfort them to encourage them to correct some confusion there and then he concludes his letter with a series of commands beginning in verse 12 look at all those commands there were over a dozen commands related to their leaders their community their prayer life their conduct And it may seem like these are somewhat unrelated, but they must have had significance, particularly to the Thessalonians. They would have recognized, here's what he, we know exactly what he's talking about with these things. Broadly, though, we could understand these commands come in the context of persecution that they're facing and the certainty of the return of the Lord. So he's just finished talking about the day of the Lord, when he will come. In other words, in light of the difficulties you face and in light of the fact that Jesus will come soon, here's how you ought to conduct yourselves in this life. As you're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, here are some instructions for you on how to live with one another. So this morning, we're just going to focus on these three related commands in verses 16 to 18. I'll walk through each command, and then we'll spend some time considering some practical helps for praying without ceasing, for what it means to pray unceasingly. Look at the first command that we have is to rejoice always. Two words in the Greek, two words in the English. Always rejoice. It's simple enough, and you know what that means. Be glad, be joyful, have joy within yourselves. And this command is modified by that adverb, always. When should you rejoice? You tell me. Let's try it again. When should you rejoice? Always. Always. Is it when your circumstances are good? Well, yes. Is it when your belly is filled with good food and all is right with the world? Yes. But it's also when you face trials, when circumstances are bad, when you're hungry, tired, persecuted, as the Thessalonians would have been. Rejoice always. You're probably familiar with other passages. Like Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He thinks it's so important, he repeats himself. Or you might think of James, who doesn't waste much time at all on the introduction to his letter. How does he begin it? He says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Of course, this doesn't mean simply putting on a happy face when some tragedy has hit. Being happy, you know, laughing or or making light of trials. Rather, this joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit produces within us because we are now children of our Father in Heaven. So look back, notice what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He's 
he's coming back to that. He's coming back to that joy that the Thessalonians had in the Holy Spirit. This is a joy that doesn't come from our circumstances, but from the Holy Spirit, who himself is the down payment for the inheritance we will receive, the guarantee of the fullness of the presence of God when we enter into heaven. You'll remember when Jesus' 70 disciples returned to him, excited about all they had seen and done, excited that they were able to cast out demons and heal people. Jesus says to them, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice always. When I was in Dallas three weeks ago for the Southern Baptist Convention, I saw something almost indescribably beautiful. As the musicians were leading us in a song of worship, I noticed one, a man one row ahead of us, in front of me. His face was badly disfigured from scarring. I imagined from fire of some sort. And as he lifted his hands in worship to Jesus... I noticed that some of his fingers were missing. I'm not sure what had happened to this brother in Christ, but I was sure of one thing. Despite the afflictions he faced, he was rejoicing in the Lord. It it was evident on his face. It was evident in his worship, evident in his singing. Despite his afflictions, he was rejoicing in the Lord. Have you ever seen someone you know has had it worse than you had? rejoicing in the Lord. And what a, a comfort, what a strengthening effect that has upon you. The recognition of and meditation upon God's benefits to us have this power of overcoming our sorrows, of overcoming our tribulations, especially as we consider Christ and all His benefits. That song we sang, in Jesus' arms there are 10,000 charms, not Uh, magical spells, but blessings from the Lord. Good gifts from Him. And it's not that we're seeking the good gifts. Ultimately, what we're seeking is Christ. As we sang, all I have is Christ. And yet when we have Christ, He throws in all the blessings that He has for us. Brothers and sisters, your inheritance in Christ is we are told, is all, are all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places purchased for you by the work of Jesus Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. This is why Paul tells the believers when he encourages them to give. He, he encourages them by saying, you are rich in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what your earthly status is. It doesn't matter what difficulties or trials you're facing, you are filthy rich in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take a moment and ponder what that means. We are heirs with Christ. Heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Dwell upon the fact that you have Christ and that He is enough and then let your heart be turned to joy. Dwell on those things which are beautiful and true and noble and honorable. And rejoice always. What does what the author of Hebrews tell us? That we are to run this race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who did what? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the author of Hebrews there uses this as an encouragement to believers for sustaining joy in the midst of bitter trials. The one who endured the trial of the cross with joy looking beyond the sorrow, looking beyond the tribulation, has founded your faith and is perfecting it day by day. This is the one who sustains you, brothers and sisters. Rejoice always, for you have Christ. The second and third commands are related to this first one. In in fact, both John Calvin and Matthew Henry agree that praying without ceasing and giving thanks in all circumstances describes how to rejoice always, that these are related commands. So Calvin says, by prayer, we disburden our anxieties. Matthew Henry says, we would rejoice more if we would pray more. This command is to pray without ceasing. You've probably heard at some point that to pray without ceasing means having an attitude of prayer. I don't really know what that means, though. (laughs) What does that mean to have an attitude of prayer? So I would, maybe I'm wrong, but I would push back a little bit on that idea. Attitude gives the, the connotation of passivity. Right? If someone has a sour attitude, it's just a part of who they are. If they have an attitude of thankfulness, maybe it's just how they were, their designed, their disposition. But I'd like you to consider this command as more uh, of an action than an attitude. Pray without ceasing. Think about the other ways Paul uses this same term, unceasingly. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly, that's that word, mentioning you in our prayers. Unceasingly mentioning you, Thessalonians, in our prayers. Also look at chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but that what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And then also in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That doesn't sound like Paul's speaking of an attitude of prayer that he has. Rather, he's speaking of the action of prayer. He is, he's consistently, constantly lifting up their names before the Father in heaven, praying for them that they would be strengthened. So to, to pray without ceasing refers to a regular, habitual, persistent pattern of praying. Later this summer, our family plans to take a beach trip. And maybe if you've been at the beach recently or, or you've been there before, Hopefully, we'll get to see some dolphins or some porpoises swimming through the water. It's just a beautiful reminder of God's good creation. But the reason you get to see them is because they come up to the surface over and over again. They're coming back to the surface. And the reason they have to come to the surface is that they want to breathe. (laughs) They have to come to the surface if they're going to breathe. They don't breathe through their mouths like we do. They have uh, a blowhole on top through which they breathe. And while they can hold their breath for up to 15 minutes, they typically come up to the surface to breathe 
about every 20 seconds, sometimes less than that. They come up constantly to get air. Their whole lives are spent continually coming up to the surface to blow out the old air and to take in new air. You could say that they surface without ceasing. Why? Because they need to. They must or they die. And we must pray, brothers and sisters. It is, it is our very life to commune with our Father in heaven. As we learn to pray without ceasing, we will lift up our prayers and petitions to the Lord and we receive back the assurance that He hears us because of Christ. Regularly throughout the day, lifting up our prayers and receiving back the promise that He will answer us according to His will. The difficulties we face are without ceasing, and so our prayers must be without ceasing. The third command Paul gives is give thanks in all things. Give thanks in all things. Calvin says that giving thanks puts a limitation on our prayers, helping us to restrain our desires and teaching us contentment. Have you ever thought about that before? If we only prayed without giving thanks, our contentment would be lacking. We'd always be desiring, but never recognizing the goodness that God has already given us. If you're only ever asking, you're expressing an appropriate dependence upon God, but you're not recognizing His good blessings to you. You're not recognizing His goodness to you. So we ought to always mingle thanksgiving with our prayers. And you see the comprehensive nature of these commands. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. A few weeks ago, Nick Lingle encouraged us to add a little variety with our prayers. We usually are content with what he called uh, circumstantial prayers. That is, prayers simply about the current circumstance we're facing. So if we're facing financial trouble, well, we pray about that. If we're facing uh, relational issues, then we pray about that. If we're facing sickness, we pray about that. And usually we're relegated to just making these kind of circumstantial prayers. But Nick encouraged us to not only pray those things, but to pray for those things which transcend our circumstances. That, that, by the way, also should inform how we make prayer requests to other people, right? Do you ever, does someone ever ask you, how can I pray for you? And you only tell them the circumstantial things that they can pray for? What would it look like instead for you to explain that circumstance and then say, I would really would love for you to pray for me that I would grow in my faith in this trial. Or that I would grow in my self-control throughout this. That, that God would produce that fruit in me by the Holy Spirit. These, these bigger prayers, these, these prayers which transcend these temporary situations and circumstances. Well, Paul says that giving thanks transcends our circumstances. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, rich or poor, healthy or sick, hurting or happy, weak or strong, in all circumstances, give thanks. Twenty years ago, I was in West Africa and I suffered from malaria and it, it, I got pretty sick. And I was sent to the only doctor that the ministry had a relationship with, which happened to be an OBGYN. I don't know why that's the only connection they had, but that's what they had. That's where I had my first and only ultrasound. 
They were checking my spleen to make sure everything was good there. But I remember, it may have been the first time I met the doctor. I can't remember exactly. But I was laying in the bed when he walked in, and my guitar was sitting against the wall, and he asked if he could pick it up and, and play a song. So, of course, I said yes, and then he began strumming. I'll never, I'll never forget that moment. He began strumming, and he sang, Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his son. And the song goes on. And now let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. And that song has it right. Because the reason you can give thanks in any and every circumstance. Is not because of the strength or happiness you have within yourself. But because of what the Lord has done. Because of what God has done in giving His Son, Jesus Christ, to us. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, the argument there in Romans 8 is an argument from greater to lesser. If God has given up the thing, the person that was most valuable of all to him, if he has given us his most treasured possession, if, if he's given us the most valuable treasure in all the universe, then will he then withhold from us the things which are less valuable or important? Would we not trust him then to give us all things that we need? As I've mentioned already, the scripture tells us he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And also in Romans 8, he tells us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Paul, one who suffered greatly. This is not one who coasted through life with ease but one who suffered at every turn, one who was persecuted, shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to have plenty and also to have nothing. And Paul says this, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Give thanks, brothers and sisters, in all circumstances. For this, Paul says, is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We don't have to wonder about what God's mysterious will for us, or about missing His will for us. He has told us what His will is for us, our sanctification, and this, rejoicing always, praying unceasingly, and giving thanks in all circumstances. So we see these three commands that Paul gives to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. But for our remaining time, I'd like, like us to consider some, some helps for praying unceasingly. How do you begin praying unceasingly? So I want to offer you five helps. They'll go pretty quickly, so don't worry about the, the time too much. First, though, struggle to know your identity in Christ. Struggle to know who you are in Christ. In other words, we must locate our obedience to this command, praying unceasingly in the indicative of our identity in Jesus Christ. 
So an imperative is the giving of the command, pray unceasingly. But the indicative is a statement of truth about who you are and what God has done. You don't pray unceasingly in order to be accepted by God. You pray unceasingly because you have been accepted by God in Christ. And it is your lifeblood to commune with your Heavenly Father. Already Paul has written to the Thessalonians the indicatives of who they are. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. All of Paul's instructions spring from these indicative truths. God has chosen you by His grace. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. In this spiritual family of God, you are loved by God. You can only rightly understand these commands if you first locate yourself under the gracious hand of God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in Christ, Jesus died for your sins. They are forgiven fully and freely. You are loved by God. Christ is your mediator, giving you full access to the Father in heaven, who loves to hear the prayers of His children. In light of these truths, then, empowered by the Holy Spirit, let us pray unceasingly. Let us lift up our prayers unceasingly to God. Know who you are in Christ. Second, struggle to know the privilege of prayer. It is a privilege that Christ has purchased with His own blood. All of these blessings, all the spiritual blessings that He has given us, they are bought by Christ for us. Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, that is what was required for you to have the privilege of prayer and the assurance to know that God hears you and He will answer you. That God hears you in a favorable way when you pray. We're reminded of who our our great high priest is in Hebrews 4, where it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. In this new and better covenant purchased by the blood of Jesus, we have access to the Father whenever and wherever we are through our high priest, Jesus Christ. What a privilege this is, brothers and sisters. Struggle to know the privilege of prayer. Third, struggle to know the presence of God. There's a Latin term which the late R.C. Sproul loved to use. He said that it it captures the essence of the Christian life. The term is quorum Deo, which means in the presence of God or before the face of God. It's the idea of living not only with integrity, but also with faith in God, knowing the ever-present reality of His being. Knowing that God is always in your presence, wherever you go, whatever you do, God is there. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in shale, you are there. And how odd would it be to always be with someone but never talk to them? You might, parents, you might like that idea on long car trips. But that's not sustainable in the long run. Brothers and sisters, every moment of every day, you are in the presence of God Almighty. And would it, would it make sense to never speak to Him throughout your day? As He is in your presence, He's just a silent, you're just silent with Him. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Know the presence of God and let it move you to unceasing prayer. Now we turn to the fourth and fifth practical helps. In these, in these we turn from getting things right in your theology and your mind to, to actual practice. So fourth, get help from the church in praying unceasingly. Get help from the church. Get help from the community of faith. These commands given in 1 Thessalonians 5 would have been read in the hearing of all the church. They weren't simply commands to individual Christians who happened to be there among other Christians. They are given in the plural. You all rejoice always. You all pray without ceasing. You all give thanks in all circumstance. All of you do these things together. The context for unceasing prayer is community. So when I got to spend a few days with a, a couple of friends a few weeks ago, I, re- I noticed this throughout the trip. One of the men... I was with, kept offering to pray with the other two of us regularly. If some concern came up, if some need came up, if some challenge came up, some temptation came up, he was ready, let's pray together over this. And we would spend 15, 20 seconds praying together over this, lifting up our voices together to the Lord. It didn't seem out of place. It didn't seem just for show. It seemed genuine. Just unceasing prayer and it had the effect of strengthening my own prayer life strengthening my faith so if we hear someone's struggling with some situation or sin what is our usual practice it is to talk to them about it. it's to listen to them those are good things it's to show empathy and concern for their need and then we assure them that we will take this back to our own private time and pray for them and i'm not saying we shouldn't do this but perhaps we ought to again add some variety to our prayer lives what if after hearing a brother or sister tell us about a a relational problem that they're having they're really having a strained relationship what if after hearing this we we said can we just pray about this right now what if after the service Little pockets formed here and there of brothers and sisters praying for one another. Because in our natural conversation, we speak about things that are important to us, that are challenging us. And we just say, can, can we just pray about this? And in this way, we begin praying together without ceasing. This is a community effort, brothers and sisters. Help one another in this. Help one another in your prayers. And fifth and finally, work to develop a habit of prayer. So a habit is a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. We usually think of it in negative terms. Forming a habit takes regular, consistent, and sustained practice. 
So you won't develop a habit of prayer simply by getting your mind right about prayer and living in the presence of God. Those things are required. You've got to have the right understanding about what prayer is and this privilege and God being always in your presence. Without those things, prayer would just become a ritual. But we are not just minds, as James Smith reminds us. We are not just brains on a stick. We are embodied humans. We are embodied spirits. So consider then just the practical idea of your posture in prayer. We're all fully aware we can pray without bowing our heads and closing our eyes. Sometimes you might think you have to do that or you're not really praying. But what might it look like for you to practice a certain posture in prayer? Maybe it means getting down on your knees a few times a day or before bed, even if it's for 30 seconds or a minute, to pray. Maybe it means going to a physical location in your house to pray a few times a day. Maybe it means gathering together with your family at at meals to pray together. And understand, these aren't commands from the Lord. These are, consider these practical wisdom on developing this habit of prayer because it does take effort on our part to develop this practice of prayer. But we must always remember that if done in our own strength, it will not last. If we depend on ourselves to produce lasting change in our prayer lives, we will only fail. And and that turns what prayer is upside down, doesn't it? What is prayer except dependence upon God? Dependence upon the Lord. And what is unceasing prayer if not an expression of our unceasing dependence upon Him? This is why we pray unceasingly. Because we are unceasingly dependent upon the Lord. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Well, Paul reminds us at the end of his letter to the Thessalonians that although there is work to be done on their part, there are commands they must seek to to obey through the Holy Spirit's power. The final result rests upon the shoulders, not of you or of me, but on God himself. Verses 23 and 24. This is what he wants to leave them with. Not only at the, the very end, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, but this this blessing that he pronounces upon them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case there is any doubt to us or to the Thessalonians that God hears Paul's prayer for us, he adds, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will do it. It's on his shoulders. The comprehensive nature of Paul's commands to the Thessalonians is matched by the comprehensive nature of God's grace to you in Christ. He will sanctify you completely, sister in Christ. He will keep you, all of you, body and soul. He will keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in Him. Let's pray together.